Sports Radio 1043 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, here's Terry. Good morning, everybody, on a beautiful Colorado day. It's going to be gorgeous. Hope you're all going to be outside today having some fun. And whether you're fishing, hunting, camping, hiking, or just sitting on your patio with your uh, your favorite beverage and some food, it's going to be a great day to be outside. We're going to cover a lot today. Weather's going to start changing tomorrow, which will change how we approach fishing, hunting, and camping around the area and the things are changing the seasons are going to start to change too so we'll get into that a little bit we're going to cover some hunting big game hunting tips with nate falinski on the second hour also in the second hour chad lachance will join us from minnesota and we'll do some contrast and compare you know i fish up there a lot about what it's like to fish up there in natural lakes compared to fishing in the reservoirs out west we're going to talk a little bit about that Uh, We're also going to have a couple of people on with us from the hatcheries, the warm water hatcheries, and how they come up with the panfish, the bass, those kind of things that stock our ponds. And we're going to talk a lot about that pond fishing on today's show at different times. And then at the end of the show, we're going to have the people from the Colorado Wildlife Federation talk about becoming an outdoor woman. They have an event coming up. We've got a lot to cover. Let's go to the phones. Joining us, Brad Peterson. Good morning, Brad. Good morning, Terry. It's a beautiful day. Are you on the water? I am. I'm out on Boyd right now as we speak. How is it doing out there? You know, it's it's been a pretty decent morning. Real mixed bag of fish. We've got uh, caught some walleye, a lot of pretty nice-sized bluegills, some perch, uh, white bass. It, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, it's a good day. You know, and we're going to talk during the course of day's, today's show about some of that different fishing. But why don't, since you started with Boyd, let's go through the major northern lakes, the northeast lakes up here, and tell us what's going on. So Boyd still has that uh, white bass bite going that we've been talking about for the last, you know, two months or so. But it's moved a lot more. The topwater activities move more towards the evenings versus the mornings. Um so that could change a lot with the weather coming in. But as the fall goes on, I usually find that afternoon bite being better than the morning bite. Um, walleyes, we're still catching them pulling bottom bouncers in that 13 to 25 foot range. Um, there's a few guys catching them trolling crankbaits. The fall jig and wrap bite is still. I'm guessing it may start up once uh, we get the cold weather this next week to drop the water temperatures a little into the 60s. We're still at 73 right now. And there are some smallmouth starting to show up uh, fishing the shallower rocks. And so that's that's a fun option for people. If you go up further north to uh, Horse Tooth, the walleyes are still out there suspended on the smelt. Uh, Night fishing with the long stick baits, trolling, and planer boards is your best way to catch those. Smallmouth have moved out to the main lake, that 15 to 25-foot range. Target the structure, the the points, the humps, uh, the transitions between the bigger rock and the smoother bottom really seem to be holding a lot of those. Uh, Union, the wipers have kind of started to turn back on again. 
they're up shallow along with the crappies. And, uh, Carter, you're still getting a few trout out deeper uh, using either lead core or um, down riggers. And the I-76 corridor, I tell you what, I would kind of avoid it. I fished with a buddy from out there on Wednesday, and he said it is just fishing really tough. Lakes are, have lost quite a bit of water during the last part of the irrigation, and some of the lakes will start to be closing for waterfowl hunting coming up. So I would kind of focus your, your effort along the North Front Range area. Before we move on, you mentioned the waterfall coming up. Right now, we do have one waterfall season, and that's teal. Just We'll get back to fishing in a minute, but people have about a week left to hunt teal. What are you seeing out there? Right now, the uh, teal, the numbers are doing really good. Uh, We've had probably our best uh, situations for an opening day that we've seen in almost a decade of teal hunting. We've got a lot of shallow water around with all the rain that we've had so that's providing opportunities especially on public areas up in like the grasslands um, ponds at the various reservoirs the reservoirs even though they're dropping they still have a lot more water than we normally have so uh, Pruitt Jackson both those areas have good opportunities for teal hunters so if you want to get out and you like chasing teal um this is the year to get out there, and this weather front is going to push some more birds in and keep them moving. So I think the whole week is going to provide good opportunities for the people who want to get out there teal hunting. With the weather we've got coming in, this might be a good week to get out, like on a Tuesday or Wednesday, if you can find a place to hunt. It's, uh, uh, it's going to still be a little rainy on on those days, I think. And you're right, the birds are pushing down, get warmed up, and get get yourself itching for what's going on. Um, what about Glendo? Let's get back to fishing. Have you heard much on Glendo? You know, Glendo, the lake dropped. We talked about it about a month ago. They dropped it and flushed down the river to fill up uh, Guernsey. The lake has, it's still dropping, but they've leveled off. It's not dropping nearly as quick. And so that is a good opportunity to go up there. The spooning bite is starting a bit, and the crappies should be going in their fall patterns along kind of the steep rock walls. So I definitely will be looking at going to Glendo. I've got a buddy that's up there this weekend, and I should have a lot more information uh, soon. But uh, that's a spot that I may be running up to in the next week. Yeah, Glendo can be extremely good in the fall, especially at spooning bite. Now, do you still use spoons up there, or do you use jigging wraps and blade baits? You know, I haven't done a lot of blade bait fishing. That's that's not my strength. I stick kind of to the spoons and the jigging wraps. Uh, and I make sure to have both because I've been up there on days where the spoons are going to produce, you know, 80% of your bites and other days where jigging wraps are going to do the same. So I usually have both tied on. And anytime I go to a spot, I mark some fish. I'm going to fish both to see which, which is getting the reaction from the fish. And... Um, once you're done, once that kind of slows down, before I leave, I always grab the other presentation, make a few casts out, and you're going to catch a few extra fish doing that. You know, I, I have kind of a theory. It may be not a good one, but uh, we used to. everybody used to spoon for these fish once the bait fish balled up and the water temperatures started dropping. And lakes from Glendo to Pueblo, everything in between, McConaughey. 
And I think the fish saw a lot of spoons. And then about a decade or so ago, the jigging wraps and blade baits made a comeback, and they really became popular, especially the jigging wrap-type baits, the glide baits. And I think a lot of fish saw those baits and was new to them. But I think right now, because the jigging wraps have been so popular and the spoons really have taken a back seat, uh, I think the fish are going to be really receptive to those spoons again. I look for a resurgence. Yeah, you know, you always get that with a new presentation that comes out. Um, there's a period of time when the fish haven't seen it. It was like the when they first came out with the wacky worm, uh, stick worm, you know, for bass fishing. Man, there were five years there that everyone was fishing it. You couldn't do anything wrong. And then the fish got educated. And then what it becomes is it's not the hot lure, but it's another tool in the tackle box to use. When the presentation or situation's right, that's going to be the best presentation. But it's it's not the just the the end-all, be-all like when they first start seeing it. You know, I want to switch gears on you and talk a little bit about pond fishing. First of all, as this weather cools, we should see them starting to stock both the front range lakes and ponds with trout again, wouldn't you think? Yeah, typically that starts up again mid to late September, and then they'll keep stocking trout until uh, kind of that mid-November time. So it's a good time to keep an eye on those stocking reports. Because uh, those fish, when they hit the water, are going to be really receptive to biting and uh, provides a good opportunity along with the, the warm water fish that are always present in the ponds. Yeah, and I want to kind of touch on the warm water fish. Next couple segments today are going to talk about how we supply those warm water fish and where we put them and what it takes to have a warm water fishery. And that's something that's really close to your heart, especially the pond fishing for warm water, isn't it? Oh, it is. I think more people get started pond fishing, and particularly around here for warm water fish, the opportunities are more plentiful. Someone who's fishing from shore can be very successful fishing ponds uh, for largemouth, smallmouth, or largemouth, uh, panfish, and then catfish. You know, oftentimes catfish are really overlooked in these ponds, and they can be really good. Yeah, we're going to talk about all that. And the bluegill and the crappie are the two main panfish. What uh, Do you use any special tactics when you go after them in the ponds? You know, I think the thing that I do different than most people is I keep my stuff, my presentations really small. I use a lot of my ice fishing jigs that are in the, you know, 1 16th is a real big jig for me, down to maybe 1 80th of an ounce. Uh, use it behind, below some sort of a float, and you're able to present those little baits, and you're going to get more bites. You might catch uh, the size you're going to catch is a wide variety, but um, it. the reason I go to ponds is for fast action. So if I can catch some big fish, great, but I just want to get a lot of bites. So downsizing your presentation is going to get you a lot more bites. Yeah, sometimes I'll use an unweighted hook under a little pencil float and just put a piece of gulp or a piece of a nightcrawler on a small hook. And if you've ever stood on a dock and thrown a piece of breadcrumb or something into the water in a lake that has a lot of panfish, you'll watch them immediately come up and eat that. And as that little thing is falling, a lot of times, whether it's that light jig or the unweighted hook under a bobber, when you just 
pull the bobber two or three feet, it brings that bait back up and it goes through that whole fall again. That's a great way for kids because they can make a couple cranks, let it sit for a few minutes, make a couple cranks, and it's deadly on them. Yeah, and that's basically the same type presentation I'm using with the little jigs. I'm not one to just cast out and sit there and watch a float. I want it to be moving it, whether it's twitching it a little bit or doing the, the tug-pause action, just to kind of cover air, you know, different areas and, and do a little bit of movement to trigger a few more bites. Now, another fish that they dock pretty uh, regularly in the lakes in Colorado and the ponds are crappies. What, uh, how do you approach crappies both in lakes and ponds? Crappies, you know, there's, there's two schools of thought with crappies. There's a lot of guys who love using minnows. And if you're using a live minnow below like a slip float or a, a pencil bobber, um, that is one time that I don't move it a whole lot because the, the live minnow is giving it its own action. But I prefer using little tube jigs, maybe in more of that 1 16th to 1 32nd ounce and kind of swimming it through the middle. You get a lot of those crappies that will suspend in the summer, you know, maybe four to eight feet down over the middle of the pond and fish that. And then as the evening comes up, they move a little bit shallower. So you either don't count down your lure quite as much, or you can use a presentation like you were talking about an unweighted hook with some gulp and you're going to catch a lot of fish. Now, as the fall moves in, those crappies are going to move closer to shore. A lot of times they go out and suspend more towards the middle. They're going to move closer to shore. So look for those areas with weeds or trees and they're going to provide a really good opportunity for people to go out and catch some nice fish between uh, now and freeze up. I couldn't agree more. The panfish and the weeds will die down with the sun at a lower apex. And and the lakes and ponds are going to start fishing from shore. And we're going to talk in the next segment about how they get those fish in those ponds and warm water lakes. Brad, if we're out of time. If people want to get a hold of you, how do they do it? You can find me on Facebook at Brad Peterson Outdoors, or you can get my newsletter at nocofishingnews.substack.com. If you want to get a hold of me uh, with a phone call or a text, it's 303-829-3998. All right, my friend, we'll talk to you again soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Terry. You bet. Brad Peterson. We're going to take a quick time out. When we come back, we're going to talk to uh, the hatchery people over the next couple segments about what it takes to get warm water species in our lakes and, uh, you know, the process and wh- where they end up. All that and more coming up on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan, presented by Jack's Outdoor Gear. Jack's got locations up and down the front range. If you haven't checked one out, you need to do that. We're going to talk uh, some winter camping with the Jack's people in the second hour. Let's go to the phones. Joining us from uh, Colorado Parks and Wildlife Hatchery System is Quentin Springer. Good morning, Quentin. Good morning, Terry. How are you today? I'm doing great. A beautiful day. Weather's going to change a little bit, but I actually think it's going to make the, the fishing and hunting a little better over with this. We get some cooling going into the fall. And, you know, <clears throat> I don't know how much you heard of that last segment we were talking about. We were talking about different fishing across the front range. And 
Uh, we have in some incredible warm water fishing, and especially for panfish, up and down the Front Range of Colorado and in other places, too. And we talk a lot about the warm water stocking. We talk about the trout. Everybody knows that the trucks pull up and dump the trout in. And we talk a lot about the walleye spawn, but you guys do a lot more than that. In fact, you your particular hatchery does a lot with crappies and bluegills. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um we're all through stocking crappie this year, but we still got bluegill left. We have somewhere in the neighborhood of about 400,000 crappie that, or, uh, sorry, bluegill that we still have left to stock this year. So, and you know, and those end up in ponds and we'll talk a little bit more about that, but take us through the process of, uh, since, you know, you probably uh, raising or stocking bluegill and crappie in Colorado, what does it take and how do you get started on that? So all of our crappie and, uh, bluegill come from brood stock that we have on the hatchery and those fish take a couple years to mature to where they can produce eggs and so what we do is um, like with crappie they spawn earlier than the bluegill do but we, we go through every single one of the fish and you can identify the sex based on um, physical characteristics and what we do is we basically pair them up and put them in the pond and you just kind of sit back and let nature take its course. And after about 45 days, you can separate the adults from the babies. Um, crappie are pretty cannibalistic. And so you have to separate them. Otherwise, the parents will eat the, the larval fish. And so then we put those young larval fish in the grow-out ponds. And in another 45 days, they're about two inches. And that's what the stocking schedule calls for for both crappie and bluegill or two-inch fairling. So that's what we stock them out as. And as far as where you stock those, that's, uh, you say, you told me, we talked earlier that you kind of have some meetings with the biologists and they determine how they're going to manage each lake and, and then they put in their request to you for what they can get. Is that right? Yeah. So um, warm water hatcheries are pretty limited as far as the number of us go across there's three warm water hatcheries and so even though we're all on the eastern slope we we stock the entire state so all three of the hatcheries we we put the miles on the trucks and we go to the southwest and we go to the northwest and especially up and down the front range there's a enormous number of ponds and lakes around the denver metro area and uh, a lot of fishing pressure on those so we spend a lot of time stocking those waters now Panfish are known to be prolific, but you say because there's pressure and because there's there's cannibalization, there a lot of these fish I'm sure end up as prey for bass or bigger panfish. Um, so you don't rely on natural reproduction for most of these panfish, except in rare instances you're supplementing almost all of them. Is that right? Yeah, there's um, you know maybe like certain particular waters they have really good reproduction or something like that. And biologists won't request fish for those, but by and large, um, like you say, either predation by other fish or just the sheer pressure that people are putting on those waters and pulling fish out, um, it takes a little bit of supplemental stocking. So we, um, you know, I think I mentioned yesterday, like our stocking schedule for bluegill is something like uh, nine pages long, and that's uh, the whole state. But just Denver metro area is like two and a half pages long. So 
yeah. Well, and that put that puts these fish in a area where uh, you can anybody can almost walk to a park pond, or a kid when he gets a little older can take his bike and go to a park pond. You know, we have a saying on the show here: "Buy him a tackle box, not an Xbox." And get them yeah. outside and fish. Get them outside and get them fishing those ponds. And the panfish. Now we're going to talk in the next segment about bass and catfishing. They're available too. But starting out, the panfish are usually willing biters, and beginning anglers just love to have action. And um, without the stocking, we really didn't have uh, a warm water panfish base in Colorado, did we? Um, you, you know, most of the warm water fish are introduced species, you know, and so if they weren't stocked, they wouldn't have been there originally. I mean, green sunfish are a native fish, and then there's there's a few, like you mentioned, catfish, like black bullheads are native, um, but by and large, all the sport fish that are warm water are introduced, so... Yeah, and so it's what a great um, service you do providing this resource. Is I know that a lot of thought goes into the size of how much it costs to raise fish because of you need you need area and space and you need feed. Are panfish fairly expensive to raise to that two inches, or is that kind of the optimal cost size too? Well, it, it's uh, warm water fish are kind of a different thing altogether. You know, like trout. Um, I like to compare trout almost to cattle because you, you just you grow them, you feed them, and they're um, intensively raised culture-wise, fish culture-wise. Warm water fish are completely different beasts because you put them in a pond. We actually fertilize the pond with alfalfa pellets, and then you're just relying on that natural food chain that occurs in every lake and pond, you know, with zooplankton and phytoplankton and everything. So that's what those guys are eating. Um, it's it's a less expensive fish to produce by far than a trout, um, and we're just kind of capitalizing on that by stocking them out at a, a smaller size, usually about two inches. There's some really good survival, even though they're smaller. You know, they can still seek out cover and escape predators and stuff at that size. But how long does it take till they grow to get maybe you know five, six inches, four or five inches, so that they're kind of catchable? Oh, like a, I'd say like a uh, bluegill. That's that's two years. That's not that long. And um, those guys are actually reproductive at two years. Crappie are probably a little longer. Um, they're probably two years again um, for the uh, six inch size or so. But then they don't become reproductive till about year four, year five in the state. So. Well, you guys are, we're about out of time, but you guys are providing a great resource. Uh, we're going to talk next segment about the the bass and the catfish, but the access to getting these warm water species, you know, you couldn't put trout in a lot of these ponds, could you? They wouldn't survive. Right. It's not just a, a temperature issue, too. It's an oxygen issue because as the water warms, it doesn't carry as much oxygen, and that's what a, it's a big driving force behind survival and trout, you know. And we right now our ponds just here in Pueblo are, you know, mid to, mid seventies to low eighties just every day, and that's just way too warm for trout. So. Well, I want to thank you guys for what you do because I go out and take advantage of it. I go fish the panfish. I take my grandkids to the ponds. That's where I get every one of them started. 
So don't take them out of my boat. I take them to a pond, and we fish for panfish. So, Quentin, thanks for what you do, and thanks to Parks and Wildlife for providing this resource. Thank you, Terry. I've enjoyed it. Appreciate your time. All right. You bet. That's Quentin Springer from Parks and Wildlife. We'll take a time out. We're going to continue this discussion as we talk about what it takes to get a fish that has become one of the most popular fish in Colorado in our lakes and ponds. On Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented by Jack's Outdoor Gear on 104.3 The Fan. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented by Jack's Outdoor Gear. If you're an outdoor enthusiast and you haven't been in a Jack's store, do yourself a favor and stop by one. And broadcasting on 104.3 The Fan, let's go to the phones. Joining us uh, also from the warm water hatchery system here in Colorado is James Skipper. Good morning, James. Howdy, Terry. How are you? I'm doing well. Did you get a chance to hear any of what we finished up with Quentin at all? I did, yeah. I caught the, about the last five or five or six minutes of it. So, you know, we have such great resources to fish for warm water fish here in Colorado, and panfish are some of them. But there's a couple other fish that really one of them is underutilized, and one of them has gone from being just another fish in Colorado over the last probably 15 years or so to being one of the most popular fish in Colorado, and that's the largemouth bass. And you do those, you do those species. Tell us a little bit. It's a little more involved raising the largemouth bass, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. So uh, I'm the, the hatchery manager for the Los Angeles Fish Hatchery. Uh, we're located in southeastern Colorado, uh, about 15 minutes east of John Martin Reservoir. Um, so you, you mentioned we do the bass and the catfish uh, for the state. Uh, the bass uh, are probably the more intensive one. Um, so what we do with those guys is... Uh, at the beginning of May, uh, we'll split those uh, fish, the adult fish, out of their overwintering pond uh, into a spawn pond. Um, we we typically put uh, right around 125 pairs uh, into each pond. And uh, right when the water temps hit around 65 consistently in the morning is when they start to spawn. Um, you know, and in nature, they bass make a nest just like sunfish. Um on the uh, the banks of the pond or, or reservoir. And so what we do is we put out artificial nests, uh, which is about a uh, foot-by-foot uh, square filter floss. Uh, and the bass kind of seek out that, that structure and that texture to lay their eggs. And we'll check those daily um, and then bring them into one of our two hatchery buildings that we have on site. Um, and for right around a week, uh, until till they hatch, so they, they feed off their yolk sac just like a, a chicken egg uh, for about a week, and then they actually lay on the bottom uh, for right around another uh, 7 to 10 days uh, until they reach what's called swim-up, uh, which is where uh, their uh, swim bladder inflates and their mouth parts form. They come up into the water column, and they start looking for um, uh, food. And so we, uh, we feed them sea monkeys or brine shrimp, uh, for about another uh, five, four or five days uh, to kind of strengthen them before they uh, go out to either our grow-out ponds or out to the reservoirs. Um, if they go to the reservoirs as fry, uh, what we do is uh, we bag them up, uh, around 30,000 little fry, 
uh, just a couple millimeters long into plastic bags, not too much different than what you'd get from, uh, say, the pet shop. Uh, we put them in uh, pizza bags, actually. Uh, we found that those are a good uh, insulating uh, cooler for transport, and we'll take those out to the reservoirs and ponds around the state. And then uh, if we... Uh, if we put them out to our grow-up ponds, what we do there is we uh, fertilize the, the pond like Quentin talked about and kind of get the zooplankton and phytoplankton going. Uh, we actually use alfalfa pellets for that um, in order to get that going. And we put the fry on top of those zooplankton. They feed for right around 30 days, and they'll come out of that pond right at about an inch and a half. Um, and then those guys go out and get stocked as well. So, so yeah, look, a couple couple things going on with those guys. That's a little different from the panfish. So, all right, and of course the bass get much bigger, and uh, and 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 they get sought after. Maybe a little more by the by the more advanced anglers. What the biologists decide where they're going to put them, um, but you pretty much stock that they end up going in most of the warm water ponds and and lakes that'll support them in the state. Absolutely, yeah. So we stock uh, all over the state. Um, we do large and small waters, uh, a lot on the eastern plains and front range. Uh, but we also uh, do quite a bit on the west slope out toward Junction and uh, uh, Cortez, Durango in that area as well. Um, but, yes, the, the warm water fish, uh, you know, they, they can survive in, uh, like Quentin was mentioning, those higher temperatures and the lower oxygens. Um, so they're a good option for those, you know, one to two acre uh, kind of park ponds that you, you see a lot of in the metro areas um, and up and down the front range. Now, is there pretty good natural reproduction out there, too, or is it or would it kind of really dwindle without supplemental stocking? Uh, so with the with the largemouth, there is pretty good natural reproduction in a lot of our waters. Um, so the idea behind stocking out the um, Largemouth as fry is basically to seed that water. Um, so you're, you're not putting out a catchable like you do with a trout, um, but you're looking at just supplementing that population. Um, and there, like I said, there is a lot of natural reproduction, but because of the, you know, the population increase in Colorado in the recent years, uh, there's a lot more pressure on that resource now. So uh, it, the, the stocking is a way to kind of supplement that and to, to help those populations sustain even with the, the increased fishing pressure. Now, we only have a couple minutes left, but I want to switch gears to the catfish. I think this is an underused resource. Um, you, how, do you get, how do we get catfish? Do we breed them here? Do we trade for them? How do we acquire catfish? Sure. So uh, we actually do trade for those guys. Um, so every state, uh, in the U.S. kind of has at least some kind of fish hatchery system, much like Colorado. Uh, and we actually get the catfish fry from out of state. Uh, so we get them from our, our partners in uh, Texas, Arkansas, and Mississippi. Um, and every uh, June, uh, we do a road trip down to those states and pick up uh, right around a, a quarter million uh, each trip uh, and come back to the hatchery. Uh, we get those, the fryer, right, right around a half inch or so long at that point. Um, they go to our hatchery tanks. We rear them up for about another month, get them to about an inch and a half before they go out to our grow-out ponds. Uh, and then we grow them up to two sizes. We stock out a three-inch fish and an eight-inch fish. 
the three inch fish again is a, to kind of feed larger waters. And then the eight inch fish is something that would go to say the front range. Like I mentioned, those park ponds, the local neighborhood ponds, um, that, you know, a kid might could catch right away, uh, being eight inches. I think they're just a great resource out there, the, the catfish, and they just add another layer for the kids fishing these ponds. And I don't think we emphasize them enough, but almost all the ponds up and down the front range have bass and, and catfish in them, don't they? Absolutely, yeah. If, uh, if there's a small park pond in your neighborhood, there's a there's a good chance we stock that on catfish. So. All right, James, we're out of time, but I just want to thank you and Quentin both and everything that Parks and Wildlife does because when I see these kids fishing these ponds and we understand the work it takes to provide that resource, we just want to say thank you. Absolutely. It's good to hear that. All right. Thanks, James. Thanks. Appreciate it. You bet. James Skipper, we're going to take a time out. When we come out, come back, we're going to tell you how to go after these ponds with a fly rod on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Let's go right to the phones. And joining us from St. Pete's Fly Shop in Fort Collins is Vince Herrera. Good morning, Vince. Hey, Terry. How are you? I'm doing great. We're going to talk some pond fishing. We've been talking that all morning long with the hatcheries. But before we do that, let's go through an update on what you're seeing out on the rivers. Yeah, everything's uh, looking good here in Fort Collins right now. Um, you know, actually, I was looking at the, the morning forecast and all next week, it's like dropping down to 70s, so it's really nice. So, like, our flows around here in Fort Collins on the Poudre River, um, they started to drop a little bit. And it's great that we still have this much water this late into the year. Um, usually we see things start to taper off in, like, July. But we had so much rain this spring and so much snowpack and still getting some showers up in our uh, in the Poudre Canyon that uh, water is still moving along. So with the water temps kind of becoming a little bit cooler and the air temps becoming cooler everything is looking really good up there the fish have been tuned into eating off the surface um the streamer fishing should start picking up here pretty soon um so yeah it's it's been really good around here on the on the pooter and the and the big thompson now the pooter especially people have questions because we had the fire we have the burn scars which obviously impacted the river a couple of years ago um, and also, we hear that there's been some off and on flooding, both the Poudre and the Big Thompson. Is, are you seeing fish in the, both those rivers up and down the uh, up and down the rivers, or is there some spots they should be avoided? How do you feel about it? You know, yes, it is good. I mean, I've talked to a lot of folks too who have like stopped putting a little bit of pressure on the Poudre River, which is really good. Um, I would say that the areas that took most of the hit from the mudslide and the, and the fires were going to be from, like, rustic, kind of closer to the top of Poudre Canyon, down to right around, like, the Mishawaka is where you see a lot of, like, debris even still coming down. So, you know, like, there are fish starting to move back into those areas of the river, which is really cool. Um, a couple of years ago, you couldn't buy a fish out there. Um, but now, you know, you spend some time in those little sections, and um, not only has... CPW been stocking the river um, in some of those portions, but you also see some of those fish coming back and the bug populations coming back, which is really cool too. So um, occasionally when we do get a rainstorm, you know, it runs off the burn scar, and I think it goes kind of north and south a little bit, and I think that's why the Big Thompson still experiences some off-color water. 
Um, so you'll get some off-color water up there after a rainstorm for a couple of days, but it, it begins to clear up, and uh, a couple of days later you're able to get back to, out there and um, throw some flies and, and catch those fish, which is really cool. Like I said, I mean, there's fish moving back into those areas where you, you couldn't even see them or find them a couple of years ago. So it's starting to come back a little bit. Yeah, you know, another good thing about both the Poudre and the Big Thompsons, there's a lot of public access. Yeah. And and now with the football games starting and things, there's actually going to be a lot of people are going to put their, a lot of them are hunters. They're out yeah. hunting, a lot of hardcore anglers. Yeah. You're going to see the pressure on the streams a lot less. It's going to be a lot easier to access these streams, I think, don't you? Yeah, definitely. And even, you know, summer kind of comes to a close and everybody goes back to work and, and students go back to school so a lot of the pressure that you do see over the summer even starts to take it easy as well so i think as we move closer to fall um yeah you start seeing less people out there which is which is um which is nice you know it kind of gives the fish a break a little bit um so yeah you definitely kind of see that change um as we approach the kind of the cooler season now you said you're using pretty small flies on the pooter because of the flows were a little low um, or at least clear. They were very clear. Um, are you still seeing quite a bit of hop, uh, dry dropper? Are you still being able to take advantage of that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, we had a really good year for, like, our salmon fly hatches and, and some of those big bugs like cicadas and stoneflies and everything. So a couple months ago, we were fishing, you know, size 6s and size 8 hopper patterns and stonefly patterns. And, and when everything starts to kind of clear up, I think those fish get really comfortable with eating some of the smaller flies. So we've been throwing smaller hoppers, you know, like size 12s, 14s, 16s, and they're still eating those um, pretty frequently. And then um, on top of the hopper dropper fishing, you know, in like the morning I'll start out with um, a hopper dropper rig, and then as the sun comes out and it starts warming up a little bit, you'll start seeing a lot of, you know, pale morning duns, caddis um, those are really big hatches on the pooter right now and so it's it's cool to be able to cut the nymph off for a little bit and even throw like a double dry fly rig with a bigger fly up front and then like a size 16 or a size 18 mayfly behind it or a 14 caddis um, yeah so those fish will definitely keen to the surface during those hatches and then after that kind of dies back down you kind of throw on a nymph again and you're just back to fishing there's some pocket water and some riffles with uh with the hopper dropper rig it's really fun yeah it sounds like it. i want to change gears on you because we were talking mostly warm water but both trout and warm water i know you're a big still water angler and there's a lot of water to take advantage of for fly anglers isn't there oh yeah there's a lot there's lots of lakes up at the top of poudre canyon to go to you know like chambers lake joe wright there's barnes meadow reservoir um, there's tons of stuff over in Rocky Mountain National Park that'll soon be like flowing down a little bit um, up in the high country, which is really fun to fish too, and throwing little dry flies and leeches at those fish. Um, yeah, and so as we get kind of into fall, you know, we'll start spending a lot of time on those still waters before they get too cold to fish, and people like to take advantage and, and use the opportunities to go up there to Joe Wright and, and catch grayling. And there's some, there's a couple like like Lake Agnes, for example, has a lot of cool fish in there as well um, that are really open to eating dry flies. So yeah, not only is like the the high country still water game really fun during the fall before it closes out, but I mean now that we get into the cooler temps and it's not 95 degrees every day anymore, you know a lot of people go up back out there in some of our local ponds and, and lakes in, in Fort Collins here, and they start targeting bass and, and carp and bluegill. 
um, all that stuff starts to pick up again too. Um, we get a good bite for it in the spring, and then it slows down for a little bit when it gets really hot. And then, um, yeah, now that it cools down, I mean, those fish start getting pretty active out there. You can have so much fun fishing these warm. We just talked about what it takes to get these warm water species into these ponds. Why don't you tell us a little bit? We got about three minutes left. Tell us about how you approach a warm water uh, small pond for either bass or panfish. Yeah, you know, um, bluegill and crappie, they eat quite a bit of stuff. So with those, you know, I like to go out there myself with like a little two-way rod, a fiberglass rod, and I'll throw on like a nymph or um, maybe like a little leech pattern that's small enough for those those fish to eat, and you could have a field day out there just like roping little bluegill and crappie, which is really fun. We all like to do that here at the shop, and you know, um, usually it's, I'll go out in the morning when it's still cool and you catch a couple, and then when it starts to heat up, you start seeing some other fish crews around, so um, you can fish some bluegill out there, and then we'll take a, a like a maybe a six, a five or a six um, fly fly rod, and we'll go and target the bass and the carp that are out there too. And those fish are really fun. I mean, you could use everything from hoppers and poppers on the surface for the the smallmouth, um, and that's that's a great time. You know, that's pretty visual, and those fish like to fight pretty hard. Um, so it's it's really fun doing that. And I'm hoping. You know, in the spring, we had so many cicadas around here. There was bass eating cicadas everywhere. And it might be worth giving a shot to throw a cicada at them. And with those dry flies, you know, you throw them on the surface, you make them move a little bit. And those fish love eating them. It's a blast. And and then eventually, you know, maybe throughout the day when it's high sunlight, those fish will push down a little bit deeper, like the bass um, and the carp. So we'll try to, you know, rig up maybe a leech rig with like a thin mint woolly bugger or a squirrel leech, um, and we kind of cast those out there and let them sink. And once you find the depth that they're cruising at, you could uh, you could hook up into those the smallmouth that are hanging out a little deeper. And sometimes what I'll do is I'll put like a little leech on my front fly, and then maybe about two feet back I'll put like a white bait fish or a clouser minnow. And uh, same thing, I'll just, like, cast it out there and let it fall, and you could find these fish along weed beds or in, uh, along drop-offs where kind of the depth changes take place, um, and it's a, it's a blast out there. It really is. I mean, uh, not enough fly anglers take advantage. I think two reasons. We're going to run out of time here, but we won't get in depth. But one is they, they're so focused on trout. But the other one is even on trout, uh, still waters, a lot of fly anglers, they use the current in the river to help them locate the fish and then to make their presentation. So they get a little anxious, I should say, when they fish still water. They lose a little confidence, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. I think my biggest key to finding success on lakes, ponds, and other still waters like that is, is having your flies either on the water surface as long as possible or under the water surface as long as possible. Um, when I first started trying to dive into those those different destinations and fishing those different lakes and everything that was one thing that i did find difficult is like your your currents will move your flies to the fish whereas on a lake you kind of just have to wait for fish to see them and cruise around so if you're spending time casting and your flies aren't in the water that's less time that the fish are going to see them so it's really important just to kind of like have patience maybe fish a couple of flies for 15 20 minutes and let them get to different depths or let them sit there for a few minutes and if they're not cruising around and eating them, it's like a good thing to change up that those flies. But for the most part, it's just keeping them in the water as long as possible. 
We are out of time. If people want more information or just to see your stores, how do they find you guys? Uh, so you can go to our website. We uh, It's just stpetes.com, S-T-P-E-T-E-S.com, and that will have our addresses to each location. We have two locations in Fort Collins, one in Old Town and one on the south end of town. And, I mean, we're always happy just to, like, talk to people on the phone and point them in the right direction. And our big mission here at the shop is to be able to guide people as much as possible from the shop. So we're always happy to kind of get people out on new water, show them what flies we're using. Um, and, yeah, definitely come up and, and check out the stores. You know, the Old Town Store is a really unique building that a lot of people like to come in and, and look through. And our cell shop is really cool, too. It used to be a, an old barn home, I believe. So, um, yeah, two unique, cool locations, and everybody is super eager to, to help anybody who comes in. All right. We are out of time, Vince, but thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, absolutely, Terry. Have a good weekend, and, uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. You bet. Vince Herrera, St. Pete's Fly Shops. We're going to take a time out, and one of our favorite outdoor personalities is going to join us, and we're going to talk hunting on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan.